two or three specific verses today. And my focus is going to be gospel unity. Pastor Trey spoke last week about the sufficiency and the simplicity of the gospel. And I thought to myself, you know, we, it'd be good to finish out the summer really focusing on a couple of questions. And here are those questions. You know, what is gospel unity? What tolerances should we have in the context of gospel unity when it comes to error, misunderstandings, wrong teachings, or heresy? How is it that we are to live in gospel unity in the midst of constant chaos and flux and fluidity? How are we to find our identity in gospel unity as a church, as a family, as a community, as a household, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And so ultimately then, it, it goes to the theme that I've been on for months now about living authentically in Christ. Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians. It was his very first writing. Very first writing. Decade and a half or more after his conversion on the way to Damascus, we see his gospel preaching and his church planting and his evangelism start to take form. And we see that in the latter part of the book of Acts, reported by Dr. Luke, who was his companion because he was in need of constant physician's care. Luke was a medical doctor. And so... Paul and his time in the region of Galatia, many cities there, many communities, many churches, maybe hundreds of congregations, if not more. God did a great work, and he taught the people of Galatia the truth of Christ and his sovereign grace, sovereign and free. And in the travels and as time progressed, other people began to think about other things just like we do. And the implications of our free thought, if I can call it that, became the, the, the breeding ground for new ideas. And as we see Solomon writing, writing in Ecclesiastes, we see that there are no new ideas under the sun. As a matter of fact, there is nothing new under the sun. No, everything is just a redone idea a warmed-over idea that someone else has already had. There is no authentic, original language or poetry or something. There are always things borrowed. And so our minds borrow from other minds, borrow from other minds. And what we find in Galatia is we have a Gnostic and then a Jewish and then a Judaizer influence. Several different things. We don't have to get into the other, the, pre, the first two is because Paul didn't write the letter to Galatians in that context. He writes the letter to the Galatians because the Judaizers, what were they? These were people who happened to be ethnic Jews who supposedly believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but then began to contemplate, well, you know, for millennia, our people have followed the precepts of Moses and have followed the law and have, and have done all of these things. And, you know, we know we don't have to do temple worship anymore, but there's one sign that must remain, and that sign is circumcision. Of all things to choose, to, you know, like, man, I'm free from the law, oh, happy condition. Let me see, but there's something. I've got to stay with something. Why not, the, <laughs> why not the prayers or why not the bathing or why not, you know, the fasting? Let's just go straight to mutilating our bodies. I mean, what man in his right mind thought of that? But anyway, that's beside the point. That's a coffee talk table discussion 
But that's what was happening. And so these Judaizers went into Galatia and they began to say, hey, hey, we believe the gospel. And they could articulate the gospel also. But they began to put pressure. They began to put pressure on these people saying, you know, we are God's chosen for a long time. You are grafted in. This is (laughs) borrowed language in the context of the English translations that we have today. And so, you know, we know a little thing or two about being God's people, and there's something that you need to understand, men. Circumcision is really something you should be emphasizing. Matter of fact, if you're really born again, then obey through circumcision. Have you ever heard that? Maybe not in your house in the context of that, but if you're really born again, then you'll, you'll do these things. If you're really a child of God, then you'll do these things, then you'll obey this way. People do it all the time. It's been done to me my entire life. It's been done to me my entire ministry. You think we're free as pastors just to uh, operate the way we think the Bible teaches us to operate? We think we are, and then all of a sudden we find out for years we've been following the mold of fearfulness, the mold of oppression, the mold of being shackled by popular opinion or public opinion or political opinion or whatever the P that we can think of there. We, we We know that there's some pervasive ideas that people impose upon us, and then when they can attach it being divine or good or righteous or worse, that if we don't do this, then we're not truly, we can't truly be sure that we're God's people. I mean, what do we do as people? What do we do as humans when we're motivated by fear of any kind? We jump to it, not to everything. And it's not about naivety. It's not about insecurity. It's about individuals and their level of tolerance and their level of being able to to exercise discernment and to see through some of these things that happen in the world and specifically in the church. Paul hears of this. He hears that these people have come and upset the church of churches of Galatia. But not one time does this letter ever condemn any of the people who have taken circumcision. Paul's not trying to free them into righteousness imputed through Christ. He's not trying to free them so that they could be born again. Paul's trying to free them from the bondage because they're born again. I want you to hear what I just said. There are people who would take this letter written to grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen to the churches, to the gatherings of Galatia. Jesus Christ, whom the Father raised from the dead, we are together, Paul says, in Christ. We are one people. This is the, you're going to see that. That's the argument that he makes here. We don't need to share circumcision because we share in Christ. That's the argument. I'm not going to teach Galatians because I really want us to focus on gospel unity today. But there are some who will upset my faith who have come to me and said, James, you know, you're a smart guy and all, and you've studied a lot, but there's some things that you've gotten wrong, and one of the things that you've gotten wrong is you're not reading really well in the context of Galatians, and Paul says that anyone who takes circumcision is a curse. No, he doesn't. He says, let these people have their way. Quit worrying about what they're doing. Let them be a curse. If they want to be cut off from Christ, Christ, let them cut the whole thing off. That's what Paul says in here. He says a little bit nice, I guess the English says, let them emasculate themselves. You want to do it, do it all the way. Be a real man. Because God doesn't want half-hearted attempts at worship. (laughs) We can all be a high-singing choir for the next 20 years. 
I mean, it's written. Just read it. It's there. And so Paul's upset. He's upset that people upset the faith of those who were settled. By going in and saying, hey, we know that you are confessing to be Christ's, but we want to come in here and we want to add a condition to the gospel. Now let me stop for a minute and let me say that when someone comes into the congregation and adds a theological distinction as a condition to the gospel, they too are just Judaizers with a different sword, different knife, and a different snip. And a lot of people that, see James, I don't care really. Because what I care about is for you to be free. For you to not be burdened by people who have no divine authority to come in and upset your faith. And more importantly, that we don't focus on people upsetting our faith, but we focus on being unified in peace. Let us focus on peace. Working in the yards yesterday, and there's vines. I mean, what in the world is like vines? And my wife's out there pulling vines and yanking vines, and, you know, it's near 100 degrees. And when we get through with all the vines, there's like six little plants sticking up. Looks like something that the lawnmower missed. Again, all that vegetation was just trash. And for those of us who have ever had a garden, we know what it's like. We've got this row, and if we don't weed it every single day, the crop is overcome by the weeds. Why can't we create a food genetically that grows like weeds? Just walk in there, oh my gosh, the tomatoes. Can we burn some? No, it's not like that. If we don't work to get the weeds out, we're never going to get to the fruit. The same thing is true in the context of our individual lives, of our individual thoughts, of our individual relationships. If we think perfection is something to strive for, we are fools from the beginning in anything. And when we hold other people to a standard that we ourselves cannot meet, we are really pressing the envelope. Not pushing it. We're smashing it. And that's not freedom. And it's no wonder why so many people walk around in drudgery. It's no wonder why so many false gospels are so appealing. It's no wonder that that Christless realities of love are so enticing. Because people are just sick and tired of being in bondage when the scriptures teach us that we are free in Christ. And that freedom should make us get up every day facing the day going, yes, this is the day the Lord has made. But that's become a cliche or a platitude. And as an overseer of my own soul and as an overseer of the teaching of the church, I have a huge responsibility to make sure that my joy is authentic. And beloved, it's not been. It's not, I haven't even tried to pretend it the last two, three years. So gospel unity. Let's go down then to chapter 3. And this is, I mean, there's so much. I could, I could probably preach, and I've done that before. I've preached an entire outline of Galatians in an hour. But Paul just gives some examples. He affirms the gospel message. He affirms the simplicity and the sufficiency of the gospel as just preaching Christ and him crucified without all the theological implications those are things that we learn as we grow god is not it god does not need our vocabulary to birth us anew there are people who argue that and they've told me there's no way a child of certain cognitive ability can be born again because they cannot comprehend the depths of the gospel then jesus is a liar and we should all pull out the grills and just have a good time today Because Jesus says, unless your faith is like these little children, and he's talking about toddlers. He's talking about toddlers 
who can't even speak full sentences, who were following him around when he did his teaching. They bother, you know, toddlers bother people, right? Unless your faith is like these little children, you will not, nor can you enter into the kingdom of heaven. God is in the business of bringing life to his people. And that life is just resting and the essence of knowing Christ is sufficient. And there are people who will come and teach you all manner of who Christ is not. And you may believe them. It doesn't mean that you're not a child of God, that you're not born again. It means that you've been deceived. And it happens every single day. And I have been deceived. And I have deceived. Thinking I was correct. And I probably will do it again in some things. But as I detangle myself from the evangelical cult now going on 15 years... It's much, it's ramped up. I'm starting to see that all these little tiny nuanced things that have been going on in my mind, I've been trying to get my handle on this and get a handle on that and get my mind around this and focus on this and how can I clean this up, that it's actually one huge thing. It's actually revolving around one thing. They're all just symptoms of one big problem. And the one big problem is man loves power. And there's something extremely and grotesquely powerful when people look at you and think, if I don't do what they say, my life is in trouble. It's like the comedian who said, as young boys, we grow up and superheroes aren't imaginations, they're options. They're career choices. <laughs> and we do, like, and I'm not just picking on the men. I mean, some of you ladies may have the same thing, but it's ridiculous. It's so self-centered. It's, it's maniacal. But when you, get a, when you get into that habit, and I think the evangelical cult has had that habit of so long of people becoming gods, and everything that they say and everything that they do and every opportunity that they have to just express themselves that moves the mind and the lives and the money of others. And, oh my goodness, if there's one way to stay in power is to marginalize people, to make them need you. And that's what the Judaizers did in Galatia. That's what theological watchdogs do. And they don't know it. They don't have the, you know, they don't have the manipulators club. Hey, guys, every Thursday night at 11 p.m., let's get together. All right, what can we do now? Let's get this strategy. No, they wake up every day with the zeal and this fire in their heart that they think is from God. And they come and they get into the place of, 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 of the community and their entire, quote, calling is to fix it all and to impose their ideas and their great wisdom on everyone else. And it's not just in the church, is it? It's everywhere. It's a disease of man, of humanity. We think that we know it all, and we don't know squat, honestly. But what can we know? They come in, and they just they want to upset us. And all it takes is just to plant a seed, and then all of a sudden, then we get upset. Then we start feeding ourselves, and then we start feeding others, and it's not on purpose. Now, are there some that are on purpose? Yes. When you call it out, and they go, nah, it's not me. And then they go, well, you know what, I, I think I'm pretty... There are some. But the majority of us just do it instinctively. And that's not unity. 
just because we all say the same thing and dress the same way and sing the same songs and walk in the same way doesn't mean we're in unity. Just because we can all confess the same theological distinctions doesn't mean we're in unity. What puts us in unity is that we're growing in love, and that love is of God even when we can't put our finger on what it really is. That's the meta-narrative of the Bible. That's the revelation of God of himself to us. He loved us in this way. And our identity is found in the person of Christ. You know, I have searched and searched and searched. Have you, have you found who you really are? No, you haven't. You found what you do. You found what you like. You found what you know. You found what you're good at. You've discovered things that you might enjoy. You discovered the feeling and the dopamine of those things around you that give you the successes and give you the, give you the, the jitters and give you the butterflies. But that's not who we are. Who are we? And Christendom throughout the centuries has done a very good job of making sure that we as the laity, but the clergy, we know who we are. We're great sinners, but yet before you 60 minutes a week, twice a week, three times a week, we're a great saint. So if we're the worst of sinners, what does it say about the people in the pews? So the only way to stand up is just to become legalistic and start adding burdens. Because when we know we don't shape up, we can just start whipping other people into shape and feel good about our intentions. That is not the call of Christ. And what I said has nothing to do with telling you that you can sin how you want to. That's silly. No one said that. We're not, we're not, we're not ridiculous. We know what is good and prudent. So in chapter 3 of Galatians, Paul, he, let me just start there in verse 1. He says, Oh, foolish Galatians! Now these are his brothers and sisters in Christ, the siblings in the Lord Jesus, siblings who by grace have been saved. And Paul has already talked about those that came from James and who were eating there with the Gentiles and how Peter, or Kepha, or Cephas as we say in the south, how he came and he sort of tried to play favoritism and look a little bit more pious by not eating certain things. Because, oh, and what did Paul do? Paul walked up and tapped him on the shoulder and said, hey, bro, man, you stinking right now. And the way you're acting right now is not gospel. This is not Christ. This is clean. And quit acting like you're something special so that you don't get judged by it. Let these people judge you based on your conscience. That's why I read out of 1 Corinthians this morning about conscience. He says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you, did you receive the spirit of works by the law or by hearing with believing and resting in faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by obedience in the flesh? Are you now being perfected by Doing things in the flesh? Are you now being perfected by circumcision of the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in, in vain or worthlessly, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing and believing? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then, here's my first today, verse 7 and 8. Know, that, know then that it is those 
of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Notice what he says there. It's not about your blood lineage. It's about God proving you're his by faith. And the scripture foreseeing that God or foretelling that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, and here is the gospel according to Abraham, according to Paul, to the people of Galatia. In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now there's so much more that I could go to there. But for the focus that I want to deal with today, there are two things. And then we're going to go at the very end. I'm going to give you a few applications in verse 38 of the same chapter. But Galatians 3.8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. This scripture, this passage, this allusion back to, to Genesis 12, I think, is God showing the incredible depth of his grace, sovereign and free in the gospel of unity. And what I want to do today in this exploration is to, is to sort of bring to light seven or eight things and theological implications to help us understand this unity. The first thing is this, understanding sovereign grace. It is a divine initiative. What does that mean? God started it. God purposed it. It is the reason the world exists. The reason the world exists is not for God's people to walk in such a way that, you know, we become Puritans. Or we become Catholics. Or we become Baptists. Or we become sovereign grace people. Or whatever name or title you want to put on a system of acting and thinking. Sovereign grace is a divine initiative. God is the author, God is the instigator, God is the power, God is the sealer, God is the finisher. Paul says that in Hebrews, right? That Jesus Christ, looking to him, the author and perfecter or finisher of our faith. The word perfecter is not actually an English word according to the spell check in documents for 20 plus years. It's always like a squealy line underneath it. So God's grace is, by definition, unmerited. Now, we have learned that there is a manifold. I want you to hear this. There's a manifold. What's that mean? Many different ways of understanding the term, the word grace, in every language in the world. And there's a difference between grace and being gracious. And in the Bible, we see that grace by definition, means something that's given to someone else without them earning it. Which is not a wage. A wage is due the person who works. If you work, you are due the wage. Good or bad. You do the crime, you do the time, you see. You dig the hole, you dig your own hole as you get paid. You dig yourself out of it. But when it comes to God... In the Bible, when the, the, the idea, the term is ascribed to God, the word grace or the idea of grace is always given to his people. And it's always salvific. So when God is exercising grace or when the scripture, the teaching of the New Testament, even the Old Testament, talks about God's grace, it's always in the context of applying it to a 
to his particular people, whether it be the nation of Israel, whether it be, uh, um, um, goodness, Jonah, wherever Jonah went, and my mind just went dead. And the, Yeah, there you go. Thank Nineveh. You know, and, 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 and those places, God's grace is salvific. He's giving an unmerited blessing. And in this divine initiative, God has an unwavering purpose and plan to save his people among humanity. This is God's action. He chose Abraham and the descendants of Abraham to be recipients of this divine blessing. And we understand that salvation is not nor can be earned. It is a finished work and it is freely given by God to those he chooses. Simple and sufficient. Simple. In Genesis 12, God speaks to Abram and says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Ephesians 3, we see the sentiment of this reality. It's by the will and the counsel of God, by the pure pleasure of God and his love for his people. In love, he adopted us to become sons and daughters. And Paul prays in the verse 14 of chapter 3 of Ephesians. He says, for this reason now, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I want you to hear that. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you, beloved, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, you, this is a specific Characterization of the audience, of you, the Ephesian church, and of you, beloved, who are receiving the same word, being rooted and grounded in love. This is the theme. We as the saints are rooted and grounded in love. If we're not rooted and grounded in love, we don't have the gospel in our minds. Because the good report is the love of God. And Christ was rooted and grounded in the grave. Isn't that funny? That's just my correlation. And this is the prayer. That you who are rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend in your minds with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. People are always looking to be filled with all the fullness of God. And every silly means necessary. And the only way to be filled with all the fullness of God. Is to count yourself and your identity in Christ. Not the Christ of evangelicalism. Not the Christ of America. Not the Christ of the nations. But the Christ of scripture. This reinforces what I've said in weeks past, our dependency on God for salvation and then our interdependency with each other to continue to grow, to be encouraged, to adopt 
a humble and receptive and loving and intimate stance toward others because of the love and the intimacy that God has granted us in Christ. It is really that simple, but it's the hardest thing to do. The second thing that we see here is that this gospel is a divine initiative, but it's also a proactive gospel. And sometimes people get all boogered up about God's foreknowledge. And there are a lot of different theological points of view over the last three to four hundred years in the academic circles of men who needed more hands-on work and less time at the desk to do things that were more productive. But, oh well, it is the will of the Lord. But there are people who are all boogered up about God's foreknowledge. And they see here in the scripture where it says, the scripture foreseeing. What that means is basically showing us The prophets of old showing us, Moses showing us what God had revealed to him. It wasn't God looking at the Bible going, oh, that's what's going to happen. Or God looking through the course of time and seeing what free agents would do and going, okay, I know how to stack my team now. (laughs) Scripture teaches very clearly that I am God and there is no other and I do exactly what I want to do and none can stay my hand and I can make a bird fly from one side of the world to another or a rich man and a ruler go here. I can take Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of nations, and make him think he's a cow laying naked in a field eating grass and defecating on himself for months. And then in the snap of my divine finger, I can bring him back to prominence. I do what I wish. Now, the trouble is, is we have the understanding of God that's maniacal, disciplining, wicked. I saw a show last night that reminded me that this is the view a lot of times that people have of God. And the reason they have it of God is that God is just, you know, he's ready just to whip us up into shape and to punish us is because two things. They've forgotten what the scripture teaches about the good report. That's not the good report. Hey, daddy's home. (laughs) I'm leaving. And secondly, because the leadership, I'm going to put some adjectives in here that are going to really upset some people, but the the, the patriarchal, Caucasian, Anglo leadership of the church for the last 2,000 years has implicated marginalizing people and keeping them in shackles by rooting them into a place of, or rutting them into a place of living according to their standards rather than to the standards of Scripture. And it's now presented theological roadmaps and blueprints that by design keep people in those places. You and me in those places. And this is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a God of justice and righteousness and goodness. He's not doing anything in the context of justice that's not right. But what wasn't right was that he give grace. Except that that justice was served in the perfect one, Jesus Christ, you see. So the scripture teaches. Peter says that, doesn't he? In his first letter. We've not come up with myths and gotten together and came up with all these stories. I mean, this is the prophets. This is everything. The old, the old writings, which you do very well to pay attention, folks. That's what Peter says about who Christ is and what he did. We didn't see it. Paul says that to the Corinthians in the second letter. We didn't see it. For, for, for eons, we didn't see it. It was like Moses with a veiled face. He couldn't even see God. And then we couldn't even see the reflection of what he couldn't see. 
because it frightened us too much. It was too much. But now, with an unveiled face, we stand face to face and we peer into the face of our Father, into the face of our Savior, like we would to the face of our lover. We look deep into the eyes of our Creator, the God who loves us, who gave Himself for us, that by faith we rest in the sufficiency of His love and His intimacy with us. This is our identity. This is the power of God and the salvation. This is our purpose. And so beyond loving as God has loved, we'll get to that in glory. The beyond that. And if we spend all of our time, if we spend all of our time thinking about our insecurities, about our insufficiencies, about our sins, then we're not living by faith or by the Spirit. We're living by the flesh. Because either we're just giving up in our hopelessness of despair or we're driving forward to try to become and perfect ourselves not by trusting and resting, but by doing and working. And this is the subtle. Sometimes it's obvious. You get your fundamentalists out there and they're like hitting you with bricks when you walk around you. I mean, I've had a guy shake my hand before, and the first question out of his mouth is, so when do you think you were born again? And quite honestly, I don't have that answer. I can't remember a time when I was not sufficiently resting since my childhood in the Christ of Scripture. And his next words were, well, because you can't pinpoint that, you're probably lost now. And I'm going, thank God I'm not in a depressed state. Go cry in the bathroom at a pastor's conference. But I avoided that guy the rest of the day. He's like, hey, Tiffins, come sit with us. I'm not, I'm not going over there. No. Like I do at the fair, I pretend to only speak French. Hey, when you little lady a thing? God's foreknowledge. This shows us that God's plan of salvation comes to pass. God is omniscient, and His plan for salvation of His people was established before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. This is sovereign grace. God's purpose is coming to pass. He is immutable, that means He does not change, and He is eternal. He has no beginning to even His desires or plans or love. <laughs> I've said this a lot, but I don't think we embrace it. I know I don't. I forget it sometimes. I put it on the shelf. God never began to love me. He always has. You too. The third thing I want to see in this idea is our unity is found through justification by faith. It's a divine paradigm. This... this, this reality that God's plan to justify... Not only his chosen people, which was a small picture of what he would do for the nations, because he called them out of Ur, Chaldeans. Remember, Abram was not Jewish. There was no Israel until Abram's son. And so in all of this, now we see this plan before the foundation of the world, showcasing, showcasing God's unconditional love for his people, for all nations, for all tongues, for all tribes, regardless of ethnicity or culture or gender or economics or power. And we're called to replicate this love with each other. We're called to embrace and seek and reframe our understanding with each other in a way that is congruent with God's unconditional love for us. 
Does it mean we like everything? Does it mean everybody that we get along with is going to be perfect? No, but neither are we. And we, got, we have to stop measuring other people's sins against our sins and saying, well, theirs are a little worse than ours. And we need to measure our righteousness against Jesus Christ and realize that in and of ourselves, we miss the mark. And the only way we don't miss the mark, the only way we have access to interrupt the worship of heaven and say, hey, pops, and I'm not saying that disrespectful. That's what the word Abba is. The Bible says we can call God pops. And he stops and he inclines, Psalm 40, he inclines his ear to us. He bends down to us. He bent down to us by sending his son in a human body to live and die for us and to be raised from the dead. We must replicate. We must live this. We must promote unity and reject any forms of prejudice, any forms of discrimination, any forms of favoritism. The fourth thing I want you to see this morning is that when it comes to the gospel and Abraham, there's a continuity and clarity of the covenant. And I see I could preach two hours on this section alone. There's a continuity. In other words, what God had promised Abram was for us. We were there, right? All nations will be blessed. It wasn't about Abram. It wasn't about Abraham, which means the father of many. It wasn't about him, but he probably thought it was because that's what guys do. I got this task, man. I'm going to be something else. That's all right. God didn't, didn't have to overcome Abraham's arrogance and deception. That man's body's rotted in the grave, and now he's standing with all humility knowing, man, I didn't get nothing right, but God got it all right. And the same thing is true there as parents, as husbands, as friends, as brothers, as sisters, as wives, as mothers. We are never going to get it right. We're, we're going to get some things right. We're going to get a lot of things wrong, just like the weeds are going to overtake the harvest. But we just keep walking out the reeds. And the flowers and the fruit will be there. God's promise to Abraham signified the beginning of the gospel to him. But where is the beginning of the gospel? In the very beginning, when God said, let there be light, and there was light. By saying that he would reconcile through the seed of the woman, his people, to rescue them from the death of the serpent. As the church, we are part of God's covenant. And we are strengthening our connection with the biblical narrative and increasing our responsibility to live out God's promises. It's like Paul talks about, the far off being brought near. And sometimes we think when we think about that, we think, well, yes, we're the far off, but I wish I had been near for longer. But guess what? The ones who were near were still not in. Think about that. The near were not close enough. It's about marriage. It wasn't about proximity. It's about intimacy. It's about covenant. It's about love. And Christ pursues us. He came to earth. He died on the cross. He rose himself from the grave. It's not about blood or desire or decision, but God's desire and purpose and plan and will and counsel. And we continue here and we see all nations. This, the fifth thing that I want you to see is the inclusivity of the gospel, the unity and diversity. Why is it so hard for us to get to the place where 
we embrace the differences of our congregation. We embrace the differences of our community. When, who wrote the, the memo some hundred, something, 200, 300, 400, 500 years ago in every community? Who wrote the memo that says, here's the place a real Christian should look? Here's how a real Christian, you know. There was a satirical thing done some years ago by this sort of wild church, but it's an old movie of Jesus, and they're dubbed, dubbed out, and he's standing there, and he says, okay, good morning, church. Welcome to the first Christian church meeting. Here are the rules. You're not allowed to have any fun unless you're poking fun at how dumb the devil is. You must wear a stylish beard like mine. I mean, these are the silly. You have to wear You can't wear T-shirts unless they have my face on it. You're not wearing your WWJD bracelets, etc. going on. And all these little cultural things. You can only eat at Chick-fil-A. You can only shop at Hobby Lobby. But when you start laying back the layers of this, I'm being funny, but there's a lot of not funny implications of the way Christian culture has been laid out for us. And one of those is that we have tried to make everyone look like us, think like us, and to implicate them as not worthy of love if they don't. And I think everyone in the room can put their finger on the timeline in their life, maybe more, maybe hundreds of times, where that's been true for you. All nations. The gospel is inclusive, but it's also exclusive. It's inclusive despite where you come from, despite what you look like, despite what you do, despite what you believe. But it's exclusive in that God will give those he wishes to the Son. But God desires unity. Unity. And that is not unity in the academics of theological precision. That is unity in growing up in love. And then we work out the others as we move forward. Now, some people will hear me say that God uses lies in the context of regeneration. God doesn't use anything in the context of regeneration except his spirit as he wishes, and it blows. There's nowhere in the Bible that says someone must hear specific things in order for God to make them alive. And there is a, there is a sense in which many people are sometimes born of God and not even know they're born of God because they haven't been in the scripture long enough to, lead, to, be, to be taught the teaching of being born of God. And they go, oh, that's what happened to me. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. And anyone who would argue that is just, I don't even say myopic, it's just foolish. In Ephesians 2, that's where I was going. I was like, what am I talking about? I lost my mind. Verse 14, this is where I was alluding to a minute ago. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you were once far off, the Ephesians, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far away, 
and peace to you who were near. For through him we both have access to one spirit to the Father, so you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. And there's a period there. Nowhere did that prescription start giving you details and distinctions about all these things that we bring and say must be in place. This is about the gospel. We'll learn and grow through those things as possible, but our unity is in the finished work of Christ. And we clarify that finished work of Christ together as the church, and then we live it out. We're here to learn, not so that we can go out and correct anyone. We're not here to correct anyone. That is not the call of any Christian whatsoever to correct anyone that God has not intimately put into your life for that purpose. Well, we've got the internet. It doesn't matter. Paul didn't have the internet. The church should reflect the diversity of ideas, the diversity of race, the diversity of of economy, the diversity of, of life. We should look like our community and not be looking to make sure everyone lives like we live, but that we do hold the standard of loving like we are to love. And until we get that, we can't deal with any other speck in the eyes of others. The sixth thing, blessings, the blessings in Christ, the fulfillment of God's promises. See, God's promise to Abraham was twofold, just like all the Psalms and all the other prophecies. There were always two or three ways it was fulfilled. It was always a temporal or personal or national or regional. But in the fulfillment of those things, there was also an eternal. When it comes to Christ, Christ is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Jesus Christ. As the body of Christ, the church is called to live as heirs of the promise, bearing witness to the grace we've received. Nothing else and nothing more. How does that work? I don't know. It depends on the need. Depends on the circumstance. Depends on the conflict. Where are the weeds in the life of the church? Conflict. Where are the weeds in the life of marriage? Conflict. Where are the weeds in the life of parenting? Conflict. When is that? The majority. There's all, it's all, we're always at the precipice, Right? One of the things that I used to do early in my 20s when I'd do magic shows and stuff, I had this, this balloon that I could blow up really, really big, and I could put a really big needle in there and put a string through it, and I could pull the string out, and the balloon wouldn't pop. It'd still be stunning. And I'm scared to death of a balloon, but that balloon would never pop. And I could get it this big. And I'd always blow it up around the most skittish person I could find. You know, like, oh, oh, just wait. That's how we live. We live in that place. There's always just, it's just a second away from the membrane breaking and something being contrary <laughs> to what we want, to what we think, to what we feel. But we, we pick up the pieces, we move on, and we find the intimacy. And we make it clear of how to work through the conflict, to be honest about it. We don't run away and make demands. We don't treat with disdain. We don't 
hurt other people on purpose. You see what I'm saying? You know those types of people. They don't like you because you don't agree with them on something, and then they make your life miserable. It isn't that you just agree that you're not on the same page. They want to hurt you. And maybe you don't have that experience. Or maybe you've only had that experience at work. Maybe you've only had that experience. But I've had that experience at church. And only at church. Of course, for a quarter century, church has been my work. But I've had other things. I've been in other places. I've been in other organizations. I've worked other types of jobs. But there is a call to faith. We must believe in this promise. And this is a gift of God. God's declaration of his plan encourages us to rest. Faith in his promise. Like Abraham, who trusted in God's promise, even though he couldn't understand the plan. We can trust that God has secured our righteousness in Jesus Christ. So this calls the church to be a community of faith where each member continuously cultivates trust in God's promises. I didn't realize how amazingly powerful being encouraged by the scripture was from someone else until last week when I called a friend, a lifelong friend, to tell him about something completely non-spiritual. And he said, well, you know, James, he said, the reason that you have seen what you have seen, don't ever forget that God gets the glory for this outcome. And he quoted scripture and he quoted scripture and I didn't need anything else. I'm like, man, that's, is that what it feels like when I do it to you? We are to encourage each other in the truth, not correct each other. Just encourage. There's nowhere where it says correct one another. There's an oversight in correction. We do it in love, but we do it through positive doctrinal application and teaching. We encourage you to remember, don't forget the love of God. Don't forget the promise of, don't forget the power of God. No, how dare you not have faith? You see? But it's easy to do. The final thing I want us to see before I close it out on application is that we live the gospel and our unity is a testament of this faith. The gospel's essence lies in the loving and intimate relationships we establish with the church, in our homes, reflecting the gospel, the unity of love within, within the triune God. John 17, where Jesus, I think I was in there a week before last. That we are one with him. Christ is one with the Father. We are one in him. We are all one. As partakers of the gospel, we must work to promote unity, love, and respect, dignity. Proving to the world that we are indeed the disciples of Christ. John 13, 35. Jesus never said, they will know you are my disciples because of the clothes that you wear. They will know that you are my disciples because you cover your toes. They will know that you are my disciples because you blow your nose. They will know that you are my disciples because you brush your teeth and wipe your behind. No. They will know you are my disciples because of what you take or leave behind. Say, I'm a poet. Here it comes. No. They will know that you are my disciples because you love one another. And I've heard it once. I've heard it a billion times. And it's utter nonsense. Well, sometimes love is tough and it just keeps it real. I don't want that love. Get away from me. That's not the love I'm looking for. I'm looking for compassion, understanding, and being seen and heard. 
and then being encouraged when the opportunity promotes itself. There's nothing better than a good rebuke with love, but that's not the mainstay. <laughs> it's hard. This passage that we've just seen illuminates God's sovereign grace and his vision for a united church, a community of believers called to embrace his grace, live out his promise, and foster unity in, in being diverse people. We're not all a bag of toenails or a bag of eyeballs. We're all different. And by doing so, we see the legacy of Abraham. We see what it means to be a blessing to all nations, Jesus Christ. Now go to verse 28. I don't know why I said 38. There's not that many verses in there. Verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, being found immersed into Christ, it wasn't about water baptism there, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. There's a lot of water under that bridge between those 20 verses. But our understanding of God's sovereign grace and unity from Galatians 3.8. And the implications that we've derived can be fully, listen to this term, embodied through the application of verse 28. These verses that I just read highlight the absolute equality in the body of Christ. There is no hierarchy. There is no one who dominates another. There is no one who is to be subservient to another. We are all to be serving one another. The pastors are not in control. The men are not in control. The husbands are not in control. We are to be submissive to one another equally. And this is not the first time I've said this, but it's the first time I've put this in the context of the gospel. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church by giving himself up. Laying himself down. Fathers, do not exacerbate your children. For you have not the authority, nor right, nor power to do so. I'm the daddy. I do what I want to do. That's not Christ-like. You see, I don't even get me started. I'm not going to box anybody but the men this morning on that one. <laughs> It's not my place. I'll let Robin get up here and box the ladies if she wants to. But in light of sovereign grace, we recognize that our salvation is not based on what we are or what we do, but on God's unwarranted love and favor. In light of the gospel of unity, we're called to practice this divine equality within the church community. No one is more privileged or less valued. Each of us have equal parts in Christ. The church, as a reflection of God's kingdom, should be a people who gather in a place where societal norms, where the societal norms, rather, that foster division and inequality are transcended. 
In Christ, all are equal. This divine equality must be demonstrated in how we value, respect, and treat each other in our church, in our homes, and in our communities. As I, taught, as I was taught as a child, as a teenager, which is high standards of Christian living. As believers, we are urged to apply these principles in our personal lives and in our relationships with others in the church. This includes respecting the dignity and value of every person, fostering a spirit of unity in our differences, promoting equal participation in church activities and functions and leadership, and displaying Christ-like love in all of our interactions. Let me give us six quick lessons. I'm just going to read these on how to truly embody this. Lesson one, cultivate humility. Humility is the cornerstone of embodying divine equality. God's sovereign grace has saved us, not our works. Every one of us are seen as equal in God's eyes. Lesson two, embrace diversity. Celebrate the cultural, racial, and social diversity of our brothers and sisters in the faith. Engage in learning about their culture. Learning about their tradition. You know, I had someone tell me years ago when they were really focused on what they were calling personal purity. And don't even get me started on the purity movement and what it represents. I'm not saying we shouldn't be pure. The Bible says us to. But they were talking about how women dress. And this is a woman. And all sorts of things. And I said, well, what do we do when we go to a country in West Africa and they all are sort of nude. Well, if they come to Christ, we need to buy them some clothes. <laughs> if they come to Christ, we need to circumcise them. It's the same thing. It's nonsense. We don't need this. Lesson three, we need to foster equality. Galatians 3.28 tells us we are all one in Christ. So we need to ensure that our actions, our words, our thoughts, our attitudes promote this unity. Speak out against prejudice among us. And seek to build an environment where everyone feels valued and heard. Lesson four, we share in fellowship. Participate in what we can together in life. In church activities or community activities. Social events. Spend time with fellow believers outside the church. Building authentic relationships that reflect God's love. Even with unbelievers. Can you believe that? Yes, believe that. Because that is the model of Christ and Paul and the apostles. They hung out with unbelievers a lot more than they did believers. And not under pretense the way we think it was. It was authentic intimacy, authentic love, and authentic concern, knowing that as the time opened, we could also share the gospel. Lesson five, display leadership as a servant. Just like Christ did. I did not come to be served, but to serve. Look for opportunities to serve one another. No matter what, you have an opportunity to serve one another, especially in prayer. Be honest about the need for prayer. And the sixth, and this is going to sound so odd coming out of my mouth because it's, it's trigger words and it's become political, but we need to advocate for justice and righteousness. We need to advocate to seek justice and defend the oppressed. We need to... As believers, stand up for those who are marginalized and mistreated. We need to embody the justice of God. 
Stand against those things in our community or the world at large. Support initiatives that aim to bring justice, unity, and peace reflecting the heart of God for justice. So as we see these things, as we see the gospel, we are called and commanded to live it out. And these are just six quick things off the top of my head that I believe will get us started. Are we doing them? Yes and no. We do these things as we have opportunity. And it starts in our homes. And then it comes to our family of faith. And then it goes to our community at large. And beloved, we're not all going to be the same. Some of us will never share the faith like the other. Some of us may not even ever articulate the gospel, but we will say and speak of it in conversations in subtle ways. That's okay. Some of us may never go out there and cut someone's grass or pay someone's bills or hug someone's neck, but we can pray in the silence of our bed as we go to sleep. God uses each one of us uniquely and powerfully to create His purposes in each of our lives. Quit measuring yourself through the lens of some other person and embrace who you are in Christ Jesus, redeemed and forgiven by His sovereign grace and love. Let's pray. Father, may Your Word be true in all that I've said. And Lord, what I haven't said, may Your Word be true. I pray that as we continue to worship and to take your table, that we would be reminded of your grace, of your love for your people who are saved because you loved us first. And then all of us would say, oh, we love you. But, Father, if we're not loving others, we're not actively loving you. Remedy that in our lives. Without guilt, without shame, without condemnation in our spirit, do not let our own hearts and minds condemn us for you are greater than our hearts father you've told us that so let's stand bold with our chin up and our shoulders back and stand if we're able and just walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've given us in christ jesus and let us be a lover of people in our own gifts in our own way and in our own time For, Father, you've created us to be who we are. You've created good works for us to walk in. So, Lord, teach us these good works. Let us not keep looking to everybody else's standard, but be who you've made us to be and live how you've called us to live. And we can be an example in humility to everyone around us, an example in love to everyone we meet. So in that, Lord, we do have a lot of work inside have a lot of work in our minds and our hearts and with our time. But even then, what you have ordained will come to pass. We are among great people, a lot of losers who have done a lot of terrible things, who have produced more weeds than fruit. We thank you, Father, that the true fruit of our lives is not from us and is not even in us, but is in the Spirit who is in us. And it is by the name of Christ, your Son, that we pray. Amen.